0: Citigroup is not dead yet. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Koppenheffer, and it's just me. David Hansen is on a much needed and much well-deserved vacation in Mexico, so you're stuck with just me for today. Um, But Let's start, as I always do, with a little bit of pop culture. I'm feeling like I'm out of the loop because I don't watch Game of Thrones. I'm sure that there are Game of Thrones fans among the WTMI community. I need some further encouragement to get on board with this because it seems like everywhere I go, everybody is talking about this show. All right, on that note, let's get to the headlines. First headline of the day, we've got a little Citigroup. This headline, Citigroup, this is Reuters. Citigroup profit rises on smaller loss from troubled assets. So we've seen the the troubles that Citigroup has had recently, specifically with the stress test results, the Federal Reserve's rejection of Citigroup's capital plans. Uh, The results overall for the first quarter were better than expected. Um, It's still really not all that encouraging. Year over year, uh, you've got revenue down, and we're seeing a lot of the same weaknesses at Citigroup that that we saw elsewhere. Uh, last end of last week, both with the JP Morgan and Wells Fargo, specifically mortgage banking down fixed income trading down, although for Citigroup at least uh, a big rebound in fixed income trading between the f- uh, fourth quarter and the first quarter, so I guess uh, you can take a look at that and, and that 's good. Uh, I think overall uh, one of the things to to take away from this the work at Citigroup continues. The big picture work at Citigroup continues. Headcount is down about 6% since 2012. Card products, that's the number of card products that Citigroup has. And and when you think about this one, you want to think about the overall complexity of the product portfolio and their ability to manage that and actually sell it. Card products reduced by around 60% since 2012 and branches down about 10%. So when we think about Citigroup becoming a smaller, more focused. Uh, organization. That continues. At City Holdings, City Holdings was actually a big part of the surprise results for the first quarter. City Holdings, the loss uh, there was down to $292 million. That was from $798 million in the first quarter of 2013. Uh, and that's while assets continued to fall, assets down 23% year over year. So when we think about the Citigroup story, I think, and, and I'm a Citigroup bull, so I'm talking my, my book here, so you've got to, got to take that into account. But I think this is a really long term story. Citigroup was near death. We have to remember that. Citigroup was near death during the financial crisis. Uh, it got beaten up really, really badly. So when we think about what Michael Corbett is doing and what we're seeing at Citigroup, we want to think five years, 10 years down the line and what this bank could look like. Uh, that is, of course, if the market, if short-term focused investors, allow this story to continue to play out. Uh, we saw with the with the Fed's reaction uh, that a lot of people are already maybe getting a little bit frustrated that this is taking too long. Uh, I think that uh, that it needs to take a long time because there's a lot that needs to be done. Moving on, second headline. We're going back to last week. This headline comes from over the weekend at Barron's. J.P. Morgan stock on sale after earnings shortfall. So David and I touched on J.P. Morgan's earnings just a little bit on Friday. I want to go back into it uh, and and take a closer look. I I went specifically through the the conference call uh, over the weekend. A couple of things I wanted to to highlight from the conference call. Here's first uh, a quote from uh, Marion Lake, the CFO at Citigroup. Uh, she said, in, in CNI, commercial, that's commercial and industrial lending, in CNI, you're right, the industry was up slightly. We were not. It's a continuation of things we've talked about, which is a combination of client selection, of being very disciplined on credit, so not chasing growth at the cost of liberal credit structures or overly aggressive pricing, and also the fact that we continue to see some of our criticized and classified loans be refinanced away from us. So we're not just going to hold the line on discipline. We are seeing the ongoing aggressive cost competitive environment on both credit terms and pricing. And we'll do every rational and sensible deal we can do, but we're not going to chase growth at the expense of discipline. None of this should be particularly surprising to J.P. Morgan investors, at least long-term J.P. Morgan investors. Coming out of the credit crisis, one of the, one of the big uh, plaudits that, that, Jay, uh, that Jamie Dimon received was that he was a conservative banker and and running J.P. Morgan in a conservative way going into the credit crisis leading up to that helped J.P. Morgan not see a lot of the problems that other banks saw during the, the credit crunch. And what we're seeing now, and, and I've actually I've heard this multiple places elsewhere, commercial and industrial loans in particular, there is a lot of competition for these loans. What that means is that you're starting to see banks... Uh, offer terms for these loans that are, we'll call them highly competitive. In some cases, they may, be, uh, they may even be stupid. <laughs> so what we're hearing here from J.P. Morgan's CFO is that J.P. Morgan is still competing for these loans, but they're thinking about the long term. They're thinking about wanting to price the loans that they're making and set the terms for the loans that they're making in a way that they're going to make money over time and, uh, and, let's say, not get caught with their pants down when the environment changes. Here's a second quote. This one actually comes from Jamie Dimon. He says, I might mention on the credit card business, we have beta tests going of our ChaseNet, and you're not going to see it in the numbers this year, but we think this is a pretty exciting thing we can do for our merchants and customers over time. Now, ChaseNet was something I touched on a little bit on Friday uh, in the show talking about some of what I came away from uh, Transact 14 with. Chase Net, in particular, is Chase's use. Uh, it's, it's a uh, deal with Visa, so Chase using the Visa network to create sort of its its own uh, its own kind of credit card network thing that connects its issued cards. Uh, so it's the, the largest issuer of Visa cards uh, and a huge issuer of, of other cards as well. To uh, its merchant services, so Ch- uh, Chase Payment Tech is one of the largest. Uh, merchant acquirers and, and payment processors, so connecting these two big groups of customers that J P. Morgan has uh, through the Visa network so this is a this is a pretty monumental deal in in the payments industry, and there are a lot of people watching this deal to see how it works out. Uh, what I think is that this is a this is a sign this is a a reminder of just how large of a player. J.P. Morgan is in, in many different parts of the financial sphere and what kind of deals, what kind of uh, new programs J.P. Morgan is able to work out because of its size and might and presence and market share within these different markets. So, so again, it's, this isn't the kind of thing, as, as Diamond says, that we're going to necessarily see this year. But thinking long-term, thinking big picture, this could be a pretty big deal down the road. Moving to headline number three. We're going back again to the end of last week. Wells Fargo shares close higher on upbeat earnings. That's a USA Today headline. So once again, uh, David and I touched a little bit on Wells Fargo last week, but I wanted to, to again go back and, and look, at the, uh, look at the conference call here. So a, in terms of the strength of Wells, Wells Fargo's model, I think this uh, John Stumpf quote from early in, the, early in the conference call kind of sums it up, and this is, this is basic numbers for Wells Fargo. But Stumpf said, Our outstanding deposit franchise continued to generate strong growth, with total deposits of $83.8 billion, or 8%. We deepened relationships across our company, achieving total record retail banking cross-sell of 6.17 products per household. Wholesale banking increased cross-sell to 7.2 products. And wealth, brokerage, and retirement cross sell was 10.42 products. So you've got really two things here. You've got the deposit franchise, the huge amount of deposits, and the growing deposits at Wells Fargo. And when we think about a bank, I I think it's easy for people to focus in on the asset side of the balance sheet. David and I have talked about this again and again. Uh, Focus on that asset side of the balance sheet and say, well, are loans growing? Are assets growing? But that can almost be the wrong way to think about it because when you think about lending, any dummy can go out and lend money. It's easy if, if, if you price it right. I'm going I'm to give you this money for free. Okay, I'll take that. Growing, growing assets and growing loans can be a pretty easy thing. So, so you want disciplined asset growth. It's actually that liability side of the balance sheet, in particular deposits, where banks can find a lot of value. So when you have customers that are willing to let you hold their money and lend it back out for a very low cost, or nothing at all. Uh, that's, that's a strong competitive advantage when you can get a lot of those deposits, and Wells Fargo' certainly a very strong deposit franchise. On the cross-sell aspect of this, this is again, this is uh, bringing in those customers and then leveraging those customers across many different products. So any individual product in banking may not be particularly profitable for a bank, particularly, uh, you know, the generic consumer, um, the generic consumer deposit uh, checking account kind of relationship. But when you can take that relationship, and as Wells Fargo does, they're, they're talking about the retail banking cross-sell of 6.17 products. So the average retail customer at Wells Fargo has more than six Wells Fargo products. That's when you start to get really profitable on a per-customer basis. Uh, second, second quote from John Stumpf here. This one, he says, the things that we look at are, and this is in, in uh, response to a question about acquisitions. He said, the things that we look at are, is there a way to enhance wealth, brokerage, retirement, uh, possibly, and that would be interesting to us, portfolio purchases. We announced something with Dillard's recently. These are the things that we like doing. We like the car business. What we're doing, if there can be an ad here or there. So I would think of it as bolt-on businesses and not of a way, not think of it as a way of transformational. But again, if we don't do anything, that's also fine. So, two, two things to consider here. First, that last part: if we don't don't do anything, that's also fine. Uh, Wells Fargo is at the point in its deposit base where it can't; uh, it's restricted by regulation from going out and purchasing other banks, bringing in uh, more deposits uh, by acquisition. So the last thing, the first thing that I'm focused on, that Stump's saying here is if we don't do anything, that's okay. We have a great, strong, organic business. We're finding ways to grow, so we don't need to do anything. But at the same time, there are a lot of different businesses across Wells Fargo, a lot of fee businesses. Uh, You've got that asset management business. He was talking about uh, the auto lending business. So there are a lot of different things here that can snap on to to Wells Fargo to increase earnings in other places uh, around and, and leverage that core consumer, that core deposit franchise. And I think this is also, uh, we can think about this as a broader point too in the, uh, in the banking business. They've got that core banking business in, in, in a lot of these banks, but then some of these fee businesses, some of these ancillary businesses can be very, very valuable uh, to the banks and a great way for them to grow. So, so, again, uh, being at Transact 14 saw a lot, of the, a lot of the payments, businesses of the big banks. I mentioned Chase Payment Tech earlier. Wells Fargo has uh, Wells Fargo Merchant Services, where it works, uh, acquires merchants. Uh, it also has, of course, a, a big uh, card-issuing franchise. Uh, but then USB, U.S. Bank Corp., is another big uh, card processor and merchant acquirer through its subsidiary, Elevon. And, and I believe a lot of the value, so we look at U.S. Bank Corp and say, wow, that bank is valued uh, on a multiple basis, much higher than many other banks. That is actually, I believe, a big reason for that because it has a very valuable payment payments business and merchant acquiring businesses, business within uh, U.S. Bancorp. Moving on to the focus today, we're going to hit this really fast. Um, I just wanted to make sure to, to, as a look ahead for the rest of the week, that we talk a little bit about the earnings that are up ahead of us. On Wednesday, we're going to hear from Bank of America. They'll be reporting first quarter earnings. Also on Wednesday, U.S. Bancorp, Huntington Bank Shares, and PNC, a few of those banks that we've watched uh, pretty closely here. Uh, Then on Thursday, Goldman Sachs and BB&T both uh, issuing earnings. So those are some of the big earnings reports to watch out for this week. We do have an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. And we love getting questions to that, uh, that email address. And we have a question today from Tim. Tim writes, a few years ago, I made the mistake and bought some shares of Aflac without doing the proper research. When I recently went to rectify that mistake, I realized I don't know enough about insurance to really understand the company. I feel like Aflac could still be a good company, but I'd like to know for sure, can you guys break down the company for me. So the first thing I'll say, Tim, is that I actually agree that Aflac is a good, if not a great company, probably a great company, Um, and a member of the uh, Dividend Aristocrats. Uh, It's raised its its dividend in consecutive years. It's not only paid, but raised the dividend for 25 25 plus years. So that's a pretty impressive track record there. So if you're a fan of dividends, Aflac is certainly one to think about. The first thing I'll say is that I've definitely been in your position before where, where I've I've gotten excited about a company, not done all of the research I needed to, bought the stock, and then later kind of said, you know, maybe I don't understand this to the extent that I should. And, and that's always an important thing. It's, uh, it's always important that you understand the business, understand what's going on there, because then when, when things happen, you're not... Always going to have somebody there to to explain them to you in real time, um, unless, I guess, you're a subscriber to one of the Motley Fool's news, newsletters, because when things happen there, we do have have people that do exactly that, that are ready to explain it in real time. So I guess there's that. Um, but uh, but AFLAC, let's talk a little bit about AFLAC here. Affleck is um, AFLAC is dominant in the supplemental insurance market, and basically what that means is they offer insurance... Uh, that is supplemental to typical health care insurance. Uh, in particular, it has a, a giant business in Japan, in Japan where there is a, a good government run uh, health, health plan. Uh, but there are certain, certain uh, things outside of that health plan uh, and certain costs that can arise where uh, customers have to go, patients have to go out of pocket uh, in order to meet those costs. And in particular, uh, Affleck has a very popular cancer product. In, uh, in Japan, where it helps cover costs uh, from certain cancer treatments. So this is supplemental insurance. So actually, when you talk about not understanding the insurance market well enough, it's important to understand what part of the insurance market the AFLAC is in. Uh, a lot of times on this show, we're talking about the property and casualty insurance market. That's very different. That is very different dynamics to what we're talking about here at AFLAC. And even if we go over to the standard uh, health insurance companies, so somebody like United Health, that business has fairly different dyma- dynamics to what we're talking about here with Aflac. So we're talking about supplemental health insurance. Also certainly a, um, a good market share, a strong market share here in the U.S., but that U.S. business isn't nearly what, uh, what the business is in Japan. So that's another issue that you have to make sure to understand with Aflac is that while we, while we know Aflac here in the U.S., and, and it has a very good business here in the U.S. It's got that great advertising campaign. We all know the duck. Most of, uh, most of Aflac's business, or the, the majority of Aflac's business, comes from Japan. Um, in terms of growth, I, I think that this, there's still opportunity to grow the supplemental uh, health coverage that Aflac has, has dominated, uh, but part of that is getting more creative uh, in how they're marketing that products, the relationships, the relationships that they can create to, uh, to sell those products to new people, and creating products that resonate with, uh, with consumers. And there may be, in particular, some opportunities to do that around some of the new, um, I hate calling it Obamacare, but let's call it Obamacare, some new products around uh, the Obamacare here in the U.S. Uh, Aflac is also branching out or has branched out into some other uh, types of insurance, like Standard Life Insurance, um, that, I think, can provide some growth opportunity for Aflac, but you're also introducing some new risks into the, into the business, and, uh, and this is a business that it hasn't, uh, it hasn't been doing for the same length of time that it's been doing the supplemental health. Um, in terms of big picture, kind of big picture macro, uh, just like most other, every other insurance business, basically, uh, Aflac is taking premiums a- ahead of time, and then investing those premiums until the time that they have to pay out costs. So they're investing those premiums primarily in fixed income bond-type securities. So just like every other uh, insurance company lately, Aflac has been, um, we'll call it suffering, maybe suffering is the right word, uh, from this low interest rate environment. So as the interest rate environment turns back around, that could be a positive for Aflac as well. So Tim, hopefully this gives you a little bit more of a background on AFLAC so that you can start some further research. I think this is definitely a company, um, if not to hold on to and to own, to, to very much have on your radar um, for when you do better understand it. Um, it's like I said, it's a personal holding of mine, and I'm a very happy AFLAC shareholder. Finishing off the day, as we always do in the Twitter sphere, our first tweet of the day comes from Josh Brown. There's no tweet here, it's just a picture and we do have the picture. This picture is, uh, it's Morpheus. It's a picture of Morpheus, and it says, what if I told you you didn't have to just buy tech stocks? Um, or, sorry, it says, what if I told you you didn't have to be 100% long tech stocks? Uh, I think this is, this is great. Over the past week, we've seen some weakness in some of the high-flying tech shares. And, uh, you know, the picture says it all. You don't have to be just in one, one type of stock. You don't have to be in just the high flyers. Um, and, and if you are, hopefully you have the perspective that you're owning those shares for the long, long term. Second tweet. We've got, uh, we've got one from The Motley Fool. The tweet is, it's hard to believe, but the mortgage market is in worse shape today than it was in 2008. Why it's in free fall. This is, a, this is an article from our very own John Maxfield, looking at the state of the mortgage market, we've seen now, we've seen three big banks step forward with first quarter earnings, and we've seen this continuation of the weakness in the mortgage market, particularly mortgage originations. Um, who knows where this is going to go, but it looks pretty ugly right now. Um, a lot of this probably the, uh, the role of rising interest rates. Really, interest rates aren't that, <laughs> actually, they're, they're still very, very low. But as they as they go up, it becomes uh, comparatively less attractive for refinances and for people to to make purchases. Um, So it'll be interesting to watch how the how the housing market, how the mortgage market continues to react as interest rates. um, Well, we'll say as interest rates continue to fluctuate. My expectation is that at some point over time, we're going to see them rise to a more normalized level. But for now, we're seeing some fluctuation. So that's the show for today. You can find us, as always, on Twitter, at TMF Financials is our Twitter handle. You can also find us, if you're watching this on video, you can find us on iTunes, listen during your workout, listen during your commute. Uh, We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, uh, we're on a number of other different platforms. That's all I've got for today. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. See you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.